Uh, this morning we are looking at a, really the first of the Christian sermons of the New Testament. The first Christian sermon really of, of history. So this, this morning is a sermon about a sermon. Just a sermon once removed, as it were. Uh, we are excited to see so many faces here this morning. Uh, I know we got family from out of town, some folks that are uh, worshiping with us even for the, the first time. We've, we've decided that because this, this Sunday is so nice and successful, we'll do this again next week. So uh, you're all invited to come same time, same place, uh, unfortunately same preacher, um, but most importantly the same uh, changeless, timeless, the same eternal, uh, the same life transforming gospel message. Um, this morning we are looking at Acts chapter 2. Uh, you can find it uh, in the, uh, the, the Pew Bible in front of you. You can also find it on the back of your insert in your bulletin to follow along. Uh, one of my favorite pastors, talking about sermons, one of my favorite pastors is George Whitfield. Uh, one of the things I have enjoyed about George Whitfield is uh, living for 12 years in Savannah, Georgia, got to see a lot of the, the product, the fruit of his labors. Uh, Bethesda Boys Home uh, there in Savannah, Georgia is still functioning, uh, housing uh, orphans uh, there and, and raising them up and the, the nurture and the admonition of the Lord is still a, a mighty ministry right there. Uh, Christ Church, where he and the Wesleys preached, uh, right there still on one of the squares in Savannah. Uh, George Whitfield was a powerful pastor, even caught the attention of Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin uh, was so amazed at how well uh, George Whitfield could be heard. Apparently a big, booming voice. Matter of fact, uh, Franklin, of course, being one to, to analyze, to engineer the whole situation, uh, would step off the squares to find out how far away uh, his voice could still be heard and then to calculate how many thousands of people could gather and hear him in his preaching. Uh, a voice that didn't seem to tire, a voice that boomed, but most importantly boomed with the authority and the power of the gospel. Well, he did minister for a while in England before coming to the United States. In uh, one place, one time in particular, uh, there's a story told in the 1730s that he was, was back in Bristol, and as he was in Bristol, uh, there was uh, a great uh, uh, assembly of coal miners. Uh, coal mining was a significant industry in that day, and, and men who would, who would live literally most of their lives underneath the ground in the dark recesses of these coal mines, digging these tunnels at great peril uh, to their life from cave-ins or even that they didn't know, just the breathing in of that coal dust. And they would emerge and just be covered in soot. And one day they emerged and they found Whitfield in the midst of preaching. And as they came out, they just sat down and began to listen. And what was truly remarkable is the testimony of what was seen is these men who were from head to toe black with soot. That as you gazed on their faces as Whitfield preached as he preached the gospel message, as he preached salvation through Christ alone, the blackness on their face, the, the soot, the, the coal, the dust began to run with the tears that these men were shedding. Hundreds and hundreds of the roughest men, white streaks down their faces as tears gushed forth to hear the message of the gospel. And that day, they were saved. It is through the foolishness of preaching that God brings salvation. That's, that's Paul's language, not mine. 
And it's not, not a Yelp essay and not a Yelp commentary on, on a lot of preaching you'll hear. There is a lot of preaching that is just foolishness for foolishness' sake. But when Peter, when Paul speaks about the foolishness of preaching, what he's, he's speaking about, I, I do thoroughly believe, is that you have one sinner standing in front of other sinners talking about the sinless Savior. You have one who cannot save talking to others who cannot save themselves about a Savior who can save. It is an amazing thing. It is through the proclamation, it is through the word preached that salvation comes. As we preach it to one another, as we preach it to ourselves, and as we gather together on Sunday morning. Now, in the book of Acts, there's some 15 sermons that are recorded. Some 15 sermons not recorded in their entirety. You see, I've grown wise to that. People who will read a sermon like this one and say, Pastor, I see this sermon of Peter there in Acts chapter 2. It only takes two minutes to read it. Why does it take you 30 minutes to preach it? Well, as we see in a second, the description given by Luke as he pens the book of Acts, he said it was with many words that Peter said these things. This is a summary of what Peter preached. Some 15 sermons in the book of Acts. And this sermon in particular is written about seven different texts of Old Testament Scripture. Predominantly, though, the prophecy as given to the prophet Joel. And so today, in the sermon about a sermon, we actually jump midstream and we look into this first Christian sermon and we pick it up. We pick it up in verse 22. Read along with me as I read aloud. This is God's Word. Peter is preaching and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, A man attested to you by God with mighty works and with wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. And therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. But when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness. And he continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those received his word, and they were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Lord, thank you for this, your word. May it be written deep to our heart. And as the grass withers and the flower fades, we give you praise that your word endures forever. Amen. There are several things that we see in this text, and we could indeed spend several, several Sundays unpacking what this one sermon is explained there in the presence. Uh, a sermon that indeed brought about a revival in one day of over 3,000 men and women. 3,000 added to the rolls of heaven. 3,000 written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 3,000 who went from death unto life. Well, what made the difference? What is it about this sermon that's different from words that have been proclaimed by anyone except Jesus to this point? And it was indeed the resurrection. Think about this. This was, this was Peter preaching this. This was Peter. Peter, the, the cowardly man who ran. Peter, the man who said, Jesus, I'll never deny you. But yet he denied Jesus three times. But it was the resurrection. It was the resurrection of which they were all witnesses that made this group of fearful men hiding behind locked doors, going back home to pick up the pieces of their lives that they had left. They thought they were now without Christ, without a master, without a Messiah. And now they come back. They come back. It's the resurrection that unites them. It's the resurrection that calls them out to become the ecclesia, the called out ones, the gathering, the people, the church. It's the resurrection. Now, if Jesus had not been raised, there never would have been this gathering at Pentecost. There never would have been a reason for this sermon. They would have been scattered. This movement would have withered away, for there were so many in that day that claimed to be Messiahs. A Messiah came and went every day. People dismissed it saying, oh, this is just another Messiah cult. But the thing that was different is where other Messiahs had been put to death, this one is alive. Though though hundreds had seen him crucified, though a city was buzzing with the news that this one who had done miracles and had preached so boldly as one with authority, that he had been crucified. Have you not heard? But now the city is alive with the news that Christ, Christ is risen And it's not just an empty tomb that bears witness to that. It is those who went to see Him lying in the grave. Those who went to anoint Him and prepare Him to rest in that tomb until He saw corruption, decomposed and was found no more. They found He was not there and He appeared to them. And He appeared to all those who had followed Him and indeed appeared to hundreds to bear testimony, witness that He is indeed alive. Those who were terrified, now empowered. Those who were fearful for their lives now said, my life is but a a breath. And that breath, every breath that I have is to proclaim that Jesus is indeed alive. 
And so how does Peter preach this? Let's look at the the components of how Peter preaches this sermon in light of the resurrection. Well, first off, as I mentioned, there are at least seven texts that are referenced in this. And we can find them interwoven with so many others. At least seven texts that are spoken, uh, spoken of in this sermon. So we see Peter's deep appreciation, knowledge of, and use of the Word of God. That what Peter does here is he takes and he speaks that the scriptures from start to finish are inspired, are profitable, and they all point to Jesus. It's not that God somewhere along midstream said, hey, look, this Genesis through Malachi message, it's just not working out. We need to put that in a separate book and let's start over with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's the way so many people approach it. And it is so wrong-headed. And it is so incomplete. So often, we, I give out, and I do, I, I love the ministry of the Gideons, the Gideons who, who put Bibles into hospital rooms and hand them to graduates, Gideons who sent me thousands, literally thousands of Bibles that I would be able to distribute as a military chaplain. And, and so very often that all the people would have room for would be one of those little pocket New Testaments, and that's fine. But I had so many folks looked at me and said, why are you only giving me part of a Bible? I said, hold on just a second, you got big pockets. And I'd hand them all 66. For Peter right here is preaching Christ and he is doing so from Genesis through Malachi. He's preaching Christ as the promised one, the fulfillment of the promise. All the preparation, all the history, all the laws, all the promises. Just like Jesus on the road to Emmaus, he's speaking to Cleopas and his companion. He said, all these things point to the sacrifice of the Messiah. All these things point to me. You think about it. You think about it in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that promise of the one who would crush the head of the serpent. We see the sacrifice of God Himself that as he, he kills the animals to take their skins to cover the shame and the sin of Adam and Eve. A sacrifice to cover shame. We see uh, Abraham and, and the son of his old age, Isaac, taken up the mountain and the promise that God Himself would provide a sacrifice and the ram trapped, trapped in the thicket. A substitute for the one who was going to die did not die that day. We, we see Joseph, the story of Joseph itself, one who was betrayed, one who was sold, one who was enslaved, one who was forgotten, one who was despised, one who was rejected, one who was left to die, became the, the, the one who brought deliverance, the one who was exalted in the, in the throne room of Pharaoh, greatly in anticipation of, of our Savior, who would be despised, rejected, betrayed, sold, persecuted, dead, but exalted and lifted up in the throne room of God. We see Moses and the deliverance uh, through the desert uh, to the promised land. We see the Old Testament clearly pointing us to Jesus. We are called, by the way, we are called so clearly to read God's Word, to absorb God's Word. And then when you read it, when you read it, your brain should become increasingly lit up If they were to do a scan of your brain as you read God's Word, all the synapses should start firing. As you start comparing and thinking about, well, you know what, this reminds me of this story, and this reminds me of this teaching, and this teaching relates to this narrative, and it all works together. And it is such an amazing thing to see how well, how perfectly God's Word coalesces and comes together. More beautifully woven than any gossamer web that you would find on a dewy spring morning. More, more connection, more interconnectedness than the internet itself. And in the 66 books you find this wonderful coming together of all of God's Word pointing us to Jesus. Peter loves the Word of God. 
But then he also clearly proclaims the love of God. The love of God. We see that if you look in verse 23. Bear with me on it as we we look and it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You see, if we are to look at the death of Jesus and simply place it in the, the file folder, the category, the box of, well, he was abused by the Romans. He was sold out by the Jews. That he was persecuted by man. He bore their wrath, their curse, their punishment. He was killed by them. If we look at it like that, then we see what happened on Good Friday to not be good at all, simply to be uh, the outlash of hate, the application of a fierce anger against a man by men, and we find no more value in it than that. But we do see, by Peter's testimony, and indeed, as Isaiah had promised, that it was according to God's plan. And Isaiah gives us a rich understanding of that. Again, the synapses firing. As Peter preaches, we're reminded of Isaiah saying, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. You see, it's on Good Friday that we're reminded that though sinful men bruised and crucified Jesus, it was the love of God that made this to occur. And it was the wrath of God poured out on him that day that accomplishes our salvation. We see the love of God in the crucifixion and the proclamation of that crucified Christ before a watching world. That's why Paul says, I've meant to know nothing among you other than Jesus and Him crucified. For it was the love of God that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for me and for you. We see the Word of God in this message We see the love of God because we see the Son of God. We see the Son of God right there. It's undeniable that Jesus is the focus of the sermon. It is all about Jesus. Peter continually returns to this is Jesus. This Jesus. I saw the Lord. This Jesus. We see repeatedly Him by name. And our words, our life, our messages, our lessons... Let me, let me give you a simple test. If the words that you're proclaiming as you're giving a Sunday school lesson, a Bible study, are talking about faith-centered things, if the words that you use and the message that you bring, if they could be spoken without hesitancy at a Kiwanis meeting, at a synagogue, if, if you could speak these things without any controversy uh, at any assembly, then then perhaps you're not bringing the whole focus of Christ in what you're saying. The most common question I get as a military chaplain, as I I speak to to people and and talk to them about the the ministry of of chaplains within the military, the the ministry uh, within the National Guard, and indeed around the world and deployed and and home circumstances, the most common question I get, or it's generally a uh, a comment with a, a, a... an inquiry afterward. They say, I hear, chaplain, that you can't pray in Jesus' name. I hear, chaplain, that you're told what you can and can't preach. Would you like to comment on that? And how can you as a Christian function in such an environment? Good question. I say, well, they... With regard to praying in Jesus' name, that's the only way I know how to pray. Whether or not I use the phrase in Jesus' name, by the way, the Lord's Prayer does not end in Jesus' name. Said, but very regularly you'll find that my prayers, whether it be before a commander's call, whether it be in front of 
Congress done that, whether it be in a public assembly, uh, very regularly will wrap my prayers up by saying, and all these things I pray in Jesus' name. But we don't just merely affix those words. It's what we do. We proclaim things in the Spirit and the name of Jesus. And in preaching, I cannot be told what I can or cannot preach. Just in the same way that I cannot be told what I can or cannot preach as I stand in this pulpit here. You, you see, I'm so thankful for the fact that we live in a free nation and in our nation that we have the freedom of religion. And I don't give up that freedom of religion simply because I'm paid to be a religious man in military clothing. All this to say, we need to stand and stand firmly in our freedom, our liberty, and the awesome opportunity it is to proclaim Jesus. Not goodness, not morality, not simply living a good life and, and making a living and, and, and pursuing the American dream. No, we speak about Jesus. And now, we talk about that in terms of maybe political persecution, uh, governmental restrictions, that sort of thing. You know what? Let's lay that aside for right now. What restrictions are you putting on yourself by limiting what you say because you're afraid you might, you might hurt someone's feelings. You might offend by bringing up Jesus. Peter says, we run to Jesus. We proclaim Jesus. We, we speak in a loving and a kind way because that's what we have. If we do not have Christ, we have nothing to offer. If we do not bring Christ to the situation, we're pitiful. Without Christ, we're wasting our time. This is Jesus. This Jesus is what Peter continues to say. This, by the way, this specific Jesus. This Jesus as proclaimed throughout all of Scripture. Not a Jesus of our own construction. Not a Jesus who we've made politically palatable and correct. But the Jesus, the one who says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We speak about the Son of God and His resurrection. Verse 24, it says, Christ, who is raised up, loosed the pains of death, impossible to be held by it. Verse 27, it says, not abandoned to Hades, not to see corruption. Verse 31, repeated but made more clear the resurrection of Christ. And verse 32, this Jesus that God raised up repeatedly in this sermon, it's the resurrection the resurrection, that Jesus is not in the grave. If He is, let's go find the body, let's see it, let's mourn, and let's go on with our lives. But He's not there. He is not there. He is risen. Praise God. We see, we see the Son of God, but then we see where He is. He's at the right hand of God. There He is. Peter speaks about this. Uh, quoting David and now speaking about Christ raised up, being exalted at the right hand of God. It's a place of honor. It's a place where he goes and he stands, now sits at the right hand of the Father. As he sits at the right hand, he is there as our mediator. He is there on behalf of sinners. He is a friend for sinners. He has not taken that place unrightfully. He has not usurped that place. He has taken that place of honor at the right hand of the Father. Because He alone is the one who could be there. And the posture is so significant. He sits. He sits at the right hand. The priests of the Old Testament couldn't do that as they continued to minister. They would become unclean. They could not sit down. Of all the furniture in the temple, the tabernacle in the temple, there was no chair. 
our Savior, has done all of his priestly duty that was required. He made intercession for us once and for all. And that God has said to his Son, you have finished the work of redemption. Sit down now at my right hand. And we, we love this. We cherish this. That the saving, suffering work of our Savior is over. And God has accepted all that the Son has done. And he is now highly exalted. And it reminds us to the words of the cross. The words simply right before he said, Into thy hands I commend thy spirit. Our Savior cried out to tell us die. He said it's finished. It is finished. We can add nothing to it. We respond to it. But we do not contribute to our salvation. He has done it all. We see too in this message, we see the promise of God. It's a covenantal promise. It's a promise to us and to our children. This, this, is, this is a wonderful, wonderful explanation of all that had been anticipated. Abraham, as he looked forward to the day of Jesus, Jesus said he was glad to see my day. Abraham, as he looked forward, said that he was reckoned as righteous because of faith. Faith is indeed how Abraham was saved. It was a promise given and he believed and we see that promise fulfilled in Jesus and we believe a promise to us and to our children after us. What is that promise? The promise of salvation. It's not that we're born into it. That's not it. It's not that we, we're born into the right family and so we're automatically saved, but that it is indeed a blessing to be born into a family of God and that family of God is the, the, the means by which God so often works to raise up children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and we, we do bring more and more families into it. It's a promise given that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord may be saved. And that we all become the family at that point. And it's a, a wonderful thing that this first of 15 sermons in Acts, the first of billions of Christian sermons, evokes the language from the beginning. The Abrahamic covenant. That I will be a God to you and to your children. And many nations will be blessed. We see also in this message, it is so rich, it is so powerful, and I pray you take it with you. I hope you see the great victory of God in the midst of it. Verse 30, it says that Jesus is enthroned. And verse 35, quoting David, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Oh, this is amazing that, that the one who was crucified, we cry out, he is victorious. To, to look upon him just three days earlier. It would seem like foolishness and nonsense to say upon the cross He is victorious. But He is no longer on the cross and He is no longer in the grave. He is high and exalted. He is victorious. And we know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and King. And, and we wrap this up. We, we see the urgent response of God. An urgency and a response as God brings about amazing effect. We look at this and we see that immediate question. Brothers, what shall we do? They ask Peter. You see, the, the gospel message evokes a response. The message of God is not to be received with complacency. The message of God is not to be received with nonchalance. We don't, we don't receive it even with intellectual amusement. We don't just simply go, wow, that's really interesting. That's really cool. You've given me something to talk about with my friends. That's not what this is about. And I know so many people who love to argue and debate and bandy about the things of God because it is interesting intellectual discussion. But if that's all it is, you might as well talk about politics. You might as well talk about world monetary funds. You might as well talk about the, uh, the insignificant things of this world. 
don't bandy about the things of God without dealing with them. Honest response to the gospel is to love it or to hate it. Honest response is to embrace it or reject it. Jesus goes so far as to say that. I don't, I don't mean to just make, make a, a controversy or to make a hard line where there is none. Jesus brings this up. He, he speaks to the church there and He says, I wish that you were hot or cold. The fact that you're lukewarm makes me want to vomit. Right? Wow. I wish that you were hot or cold, but be done with this lukewarm nonsense. Today is the day. Today is the day that we are to respond. It is urgent because we have no assurance that that today, tomorrow, the next day the Lord returns or we close our eyes to this world and we see Him passing through the veil of death. We have no assurance that we'll have the opportunity, but today is the day that we do our business with God. Today is the day that we deal with it. We do not respond to it in indifference. There's, there's a wonderful poem. It's written by the name of a fellow by the name of uh, Jeffrey Kennedy, Stuttered Kennedy. It's, it's a poem, very short poem called When Jesus Came to Golgotha. Listen to these words. It says, When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails through his hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns, and red were the wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to live with us, we simply passed him by. We never hurt a hair of him, we only let him die. For men had grown more tender, and we would not give him pain. We only just passed down the street, and we left him in the rain. And still Jesus cried, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And still it rained, the winter rain that drenched him through and through. The crowds went home and left the streets without a soul to see. And Jesus crouched against the wall, and he cried for Calvary. You see, we, we look at the brutality of the cross, and we cry out, how could man do such? And, and, and we, we do far worse. We receive all this with indifference. We don't do our business with Jesus. But know this. That great is the effect of the gospel and great is the effect among us. We think about the cross like a great funnel that all of history funnels to this point and out from it funnels great. It funnels broad. It funnels wide. This amazing torrent of grace and goodness and amazing redemption, amazing salvation and amazing magnitude to it. Think about this. 3,000 added to them that day. And we look and we pray so often, so pitifully, Lord, may I reach just one or two? Yes, pray that, pray that, pray that. But pray more. Pray boldly. Pray in such a way that it would be audacious and ridiculous if God did not meet you in that prayer. We live in a a county right here in Elmore County where our church is, a county of some 82,000 people. But you add to it the other counties within our parish, within our reach. You add to it Otauga and Montgomery, 55,000 in Otauga County, half a million in Montgomery County. And and so suddenly we see the amazing opportunity right here at our doorstep to proclaim Jesus Christ. And is it so ridiculous that God would add 3,000 to the number right here with us? Right here among us. Is that ridiculous? Is this indeed the God who says all things in me are possible? Is this indeed the God that in that doxology of Ephesians says the one who is able to do immeasurably more than we could hope or dream. Can you dream that big? 
God can do immeasurably more. Immeasurably more. But how will they hear unless we go forth? How will, we, how will they hear unless we proclaim the gospel? Oh, I pray that God would be glorified. That He would be glorified in the church through Jesus Christ today, tomorrow, and forever. That we would be blessed to see an investment in eternity. A legacy of righteousness because of God working through us. You think about our lifetime. I I don't care one whit. I do. I do, but it pales in comparison compared to the gospel. I, I care only maybe a whit about whether or not we can pay off the national debt in my lifetime. About whether or not we can defeat ISIS and terrorism in my lifetime. Whether or not we can cure all diseases and end world hunger in my lifetime. They'd be strong legacies all, yes, but one legacy outshines them as if they were darkness itself. That which this cowardly but newly empowered Peter is blessed to see, 3,000 moving from death to life that day, 3,000 moving from hell to heaven, 3,000 declaring for the very first time that Jesus is Lord. But how will they call on Him in whom they've not believed, and how will they believe in Him that they've not heard? Let then, let then today be the day that your feet become beautiful, that you take that gospel, that good news, Make it your resolve that your words will be filled with Christ. That you would proclaim His resurrection every day for His glory. May God be pleased to use us, not just on Easter, but all the days that He gives us. Amen? Amen. Pray. Let's pray, Lord God. We, We do come this morning and we thank You. Father, we thank You that You have so richly blessed us. You have given so richly to us on this day. We know that the resurrection of Christ is a promise of our resurrection. Forgive us, Lord God, for receiving this message so often with the ho-hum resignation of saying, yes, I know this story. Let's learn something new. Father, may we be reminded of the reality of the crucifixion for us and the reality of the resurrection accomplished because we could not. We could not lay down our life to take it up again, but God Himself, You did. Father, I pray that this would be a day of renewal for so many. Father, so many within the sound of my voice may have, have regularly heard these messages, heard the gospel, heard sermons, and, and, and walked away and, and gave assent to them, but Father, found no transformation or renewal in their lives. May today be the day that that is accomplished, the first of many days where there is great joy in knowing that this is not only resurrection, but resurrection applied to me. Father, may we rejoice in knowing Christ is King and that he intercedes for us right now at the right hand. And he intercedes effectually for you here. And Christ is that sitting reminder that all of my sin has been paid for. And all of his righteousness is mine. Oh, may you be praised, Lord God, as we worship you. And as we go forth in Jesus' name. Amen.